right, we are at our text, Habakkuk 2 and Lord's Day 35. Before we read these, let's ask for God's blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful to be able to open your word and to read it. And we pray that you would bless it even as we look to the second commandment and what is the right way to worship you and what is the wrong way. And we pray that you would guide us and renew our appreciation for what is true and right worship. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20 says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, where its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, but all the earth keeps silence before him. Just a few comments before we turn our attention to hybrid catechism. That is, it displays wonderfully what is not only false gods, but a false form of worship. A way in which that seeks to take what can be crafted by our hands and and say it's divine, that we can take and try to make it into something that it is not. And even make it so that it's, it's ourselves who are gods over it. You can see that in the text, that its maker has shaped it, a metal image and teacher of lies. It, it, it tells you what, it wants, what you want it to tell you. You fashion your God in the character of the God you want it to be. You fashion the worship that you want to give to this God that you've made up. The whole system is broken. The whole system is ridiculous. And as it says there at the end, there's no breath at all in it. And then verse 20 contrasts that. But the Lord is in his holy temple. That, that's the place where you can go. He's there. That's, that, that's what it's saying. You can go there and be in the presence of the Lord. That's where he is. He dwells there. He was dwelling with his people. He exists. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And with that, then, in our minds, now we turn our attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35 as we seek to unpack what is this second commandment. Lord's Day 35 says, What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. People of God, I put before you this, this question rather important question. What is good worship? What is good worship? I'm going to ask the boys and girls that same question. What is worship itself? That's what we're doing here. Worship is when you come to to thank or praise, to to do something that is is nice for someone else, and it's much more than that as well. It's it's to come to to tell them that you thank them, and and worship to a God is is much more even than that. It's it's something that you're bringing to them to, to show that you serve them. 
Now, you, you worship them means you live your life for them. But then we have formal times of worship. And, and that's, well, what do we do to, to please this, this God we, we serve, this God we worship? How, what actions do we do to please him? So when you start contemplating what worship is, when you start thinking about that, that question needs to be raised in your mind. Well, what is good worship? Unfortunately, that's a question that's often neglected, and you can't actually overstate its importance. Its importance is such that a true Christian desires to give good worship. And it's so true as well that, that if you don't understand what true good worship is, you don't understand your God. If your worship is corrupt, you have a corrupted view of God. That's how important worship is to for, for us to, to come before the Lord and, and profess faith in Him and to serve Him, even in a time where we set aside like this. Now, when you ask yourself that question, what's good worship? You might internalize it and say, well, good worship is when I desire to do this. It, it's a sincere, heartfelt desire. My, my heart's all in, you could say. I'm coming to worship the Lord because I want to. My desire is there, and that's necessary for true good worship. But not just to internalize that question, what makes good worship? It's, it's, it's more even than just my heart's engaged and I desire to do it. You also have to externalize it and say, but, but what do you do? How do you worship this God? How do you let him know that you're thankful for what he's done? How do you appropriately praise his name? We have to ask ourselves those internal questions. When I'm engaged in worship, am I distracted or am I, am I locked in? Am I filled with joy? These are all good and necessary. But then to externalize it as well, we have to say, well, what do we do? There has to be an external standard upon which we do worship the Lord. And, and we are dealing with the second commandment here, but, but we're dealing with the principles behind it. We're dealing with what the second commandment is saying is, is not simply don't worship God through idols or images. It's actually establishing a principle, a principle or pattern upon which we govern our worship itself. And that's that we worship God in the way he has told us to. You know, when you think of, then, ways to worship, you can realize that there must be a right and wrong way, and, and we could illustrate it this way. Pagan worship often permitted these types of activities, sexual activity, gluttony and greed, child sacrifice. These were once a legitimate version of a worship to deities. And you would say, well, that's clearly wrong. And, and so you start building, well, there's a, there must then be a category of things that are not appropriate and, and a category of things that are appropriate for worship. Because not all worship is good worship. I think we need to, to keep that in mind, especially in our day, that, that internalizes and personalizes everything and that each man is left to his own will to determine, well, what's acceptable to God? Not all worship is good worship. We have biblical principles that govern how we worship God. So I want us to evaluate this statement. Let's evaluate the following statement. Is this enough? Worship is true and acceptable to God as long as it doesn't disobey any of God's commandments. Worship is true and acceptable to God as long as it doesn't disobey any of God's commandments. Do you think that's correct? Do you think that that goes far enough? 
Is it merely then that you just don't sin? And that's what it's saying. You, you cannot sin. If it's a sinful activity, then you can't use it in worship. Now, on one hand, such a, such a standard, such a principle would weed out some of the things we said. Child sacrifice, sexual sin, greed and gluttony, those things are, are wrong. And so you would, you'd be able to say, no, that's not appropriate in worship. But does that actually mean then we know what is appropriate to do in worship, or, or is there still questions? And the answer is there are still questions. That, that statement I told you to evaluate is what's called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle teaches that whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship, as long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. In short, there must be agreement with the general practice of the church and no prohibition in Scripture for whatever is done in worship. Now this principle, the reason I would say it's lacking is because you'd still have these types of questions. Should our worship be organized around a hike? Where we can go out in nature, where we can open the doors and, and just travel in a line and a meditative walk through nature and, and just ponder what God has made. And, and that is even a good activity. But is that the corporate or gathered worship of the Lord? Is that appropriate for the worship of God in that formal way? Well, according to the normative principle, according to saying you can't just sin, and if you're not sinning, then it's appropriate, then you could say yes. What about, uh, what if we decided that the best way to worship the Lord would, were to, to watch movies or let's gather in the fellowship hall and, and lay out a bunch of board games and we can fellowship together and, and worship God that way? Is this acceptable? You see where I'm going with this. Just, just by saying you can't sin and do something God's forbidden doesn't establish to you a, a, an idea and a principle of what then is appropriate in the way in which to worship God. The second commandment then establishes this principle, and it's the Heidelberg Catechism that gives it to us, what's called in Reformed theology the regulative principle of worship. And it does what that name intends and implies. It regulates the worship of God. It gives to us a biblical principle and pattern on how to worship the Lord. You see it in question and answer 96 of your Heidelberg Catechism. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. I want to make sure we understand that, that we're, we're crystal clear there. The difference between a normative principle and a regulative principle is that the one says it is left up to us to decide what we want to do as long as it's not sinful. Whereas the regulative principle says, no, what we bring to the Lord in worship is what he's told us to bring, what he's told us to do. And that's at the heart of what the second commandment is. You see, in the first commandment, it's about who we worship. The second commandment is about how we worship. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a need for two commandments. They would seem to be saying the same thing. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church would number them that way. That The first commandment it says that you shall have no other gods before me. But the second commandment would seem on one level to just be repeating that, to say you shall have no graven images or idols. But the difference there is, one is the, the, the who, the God you're actually worshiping, and as we said, the other is how you do it. And that's what matters to God. Your, in, your intentions could be crystal clear. Your desire could be that I would sincerely worship God, but if you do it in a way that he has commanded, then it is not truly good, acceptable worship. It's important that we understand that. 
We see this principle in the church. Ask yourself this question. Was the worship system of the Old Testament governed by the normative or regulative principle? Or to put it that we would understand it, was the Old Testament governed according to a system of laws that said, do what you will, just don't violate my Ten Commandments. Don't do what I've told you not to do. Or was it strictly regulated where the incense was given a recipe that was strict and holy and set apart? And the priest's clothes were, were described down to the, the gems in the breastpiece and the words that were used were given by the Lord. And it was strictly regulated. Well, the whole intent and purpose of the worship system then was to show us that it matters how we worship the Lord. And he has commanded a way to do it. Now, the Old Testament way has passed. We, we, we passed on. We don't worship in the temple. We don't make sacrifices, no. But the principle still stands. We worship God the way he wants to be worshipped. We see then in our Bibles the, the patterns of our worship now. Acts 2.42 says about the early church, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. That verse is, is a little picture, a snippet of what the, the early church was doing and how they worshipped. In Acts 20, verse 7, we see the church gathering on the Lord's Day, and they're gathering to break bread, and Paul is preaching to them. We also see in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul directs the taking of an offering on the first day of the week. Now, a bit of explanation. This is not saying everything we do in worship has attached to it in Scripture this little phrase, do this in public worship. You won't ordinarily find that. You won't ordinarily find that clear of a description. This is an activity the Lord wants done in corporate worship. But it is by the wise use and interpretation of God's Word that we, we glean and see, well, this is the way God would have it and have his church worship him. This is the biblical pattern. This is the pattern that God sets forth. Now, there's, there's a lot of freedom underneath that. We have to be, we be clear that we understand that as well. Our, our current liturgy, the way we operate and do worship in this church and our, our sister churches and congregations is a good and acceptable one. That doesn't mean we believe that's the only way an order of worship can be laid out or that every activity as we perform it must be done in this way. We, we understand in this new covenant there is freedom in expression of worship, but it's still regulated to what God has put forth, what God has commanded. And so by wisely interpreting it, we are seeing what God would have us do. And the reason behind this is one of love. Let me illustrate it this way. If you're going to give a gift, we're in the Christmas season, right? You, you think a lot about the gifts you're going to give. Maybe, boys and girls, you're thinking about the gifts that you would give to a brother or a sister. Now, if you're thinking of giving a gift to a brother or a sister, I'm guessing what you have to do is think, what do they like? Your, your, your way of going to buy the gift wouldn't be, well, I'm going to buy a gift for my sister, and I'm going to buy the army men I like, and I'll give it to her. Well, that would probably not be a good gift. That's probably not something that she would like. I am stereotyping, but you see, you, you, we understand what I'm saying here. You, you think of what they want. Is our worship to be the same? It is a sacrifice. It is an offering to whom? The Lord. Which means then what's supposed to guide worship, and this is important, what's supposed to guide worship isn't this thought, how do I like it? How do I like to worship? 
What would please me, and how would I structure in our service? No, the question is, what pleases God? What does he want? How does he want it expressed? We see clearly in his word, it's, it's preaching. It's the proclamation of the gospel and the, and, and the son of salvation in him. We see that it's in the de- a declaration to sing songs, to praise him and to pray to him. To, co- to gather together, to, to witness and to have the sacraments administered to us. To, to give of our gifts and, and to take offerings and bring them to him. These, these have always been parts of worship to the Lord and what he would call us to do. And, and that's what regulates our worship. Acceptable offerings, acceptable gifts. Whenever you're talking about the regulative principle, a passage that I almost guarantee you will always come up, and it's going to again tonight, is Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. The passage of Nadab and Abihu, and the reason it always comes up is because it illustrates the point so well that God will only accept worship he has, has commanded, worship he said to give to him. It says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Another text that would illustrate this point of what's acceptable worship or, or the fact that there's an unacceptable way of worshiping the Lord is Hebrews 12, 28, and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, it's in, it's in places like that where you start to wisely interpret God's word and see here's even a manner in which we worship God. The manner that's supposed to, to regulate our worship is one of reverence and awe. That's how we come before the Lord in worship. And the text says there's an acceptable way of worshiping him. Do we understand what true worship is? And that all facets of it matter, that, that our heart needs to be engaged as well as our understanding, and that this is acceptable to the Lord, and so we do these activities. We, we center it around the preaching of his word. We sing songs, we praise him, we pray to him. So that's really, we, we've gone first to the broader application of this commandment, but now I want to focus on the commandment itself and what it says about images, images and worship. The second commandment, as given in Scripture, does not forbid images and making of images in any capacity. Art is not wrong. Painting is not wrong. It forbids its use in worship, however. And it says that we are not able and it is wrong for us to try to depict God in any way. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed. And why is that? Because God, as who he is in his very being, is spirit. You can't, you can't take spirit and make an image of it. To do so is to, to obliterate the fact that your God is not an image. Your God is not a visible manifestation. He is not physical substance. You can't take the infinite and confine it to finite. And any time you will try, you will have a distorted version of who God is. Can't do it. Images can't accomplish it. Many of the points that are following are taken from one commentary that, that explains how images can't be used. First, the use of images misunderstands God's freedom. The use of images misunderstands God's freedom. 
What do we mean there? Well, God is eminently, supremely free. He is not bound. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be manipulated. Now, you saw in our reading from Habakkuk that part of the very intention and design is that you manipulate your gods. They're there. They're confined. You seek to use them. Israel tried to do this to the Lord when it took the the Ark of the Covenant and and took it to battle and said, if we take that with us, we will gain the victory. And God didn't tell them to do that. They were trying to coerce and use God. Let's take this, this image that we associate with him, which was not him. It wasn't an image of God. It was the footstool to his throne. But let's take that and use him and force him into a victory. God is free. He will not be so coerced. He will not be so manipulated. And and when we take a false form of worship, that's actually what we're trying to do. A false form of worship is trying to manipulate God to our own purposes, to our own designs, and to our own desire. God is free. He cannot be so manipulated. Second, the use of images misunderstands God's majesty. Misunderstands his majesty. The second commandment is distinguishing between the Creator and His creatures. Idols and images, because they are made from the created order, confuse this fundamental distinction. God created all things. He is not created. You see then the abhorring practice then to think we could create an image of Him, that that we could form something and say, this is God. How despicable it was when Israel came out of Egypt and made their golden calf, and Aaron would say, here's your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is the creator. He's not created. To try to, very, to, try to put him in that box is to misunderstand his majesty itself. Deuteronomy four fifteen and 16 says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image in the form of any figure. It was the voice of the Lord. Now at times, God would use physical things to illustrate aspects of himself. He would use a cloud to show that his presence is descending, but it was not that that cloud was himself. He would use lightning and fire and whirlwinds and storms to cloak and hide his glory, to show forth his power as a a manifestation of his power, but it wasn't as if the storm was God. Again, he is spirit. Idolatry turns the order of creation upside down, and the idolater attempts to make God in his image and attempts to put his voice in God's mouth. Now, that's more clear to us when we think, let's go fashion an idol. But that's also what's going on when we create false images of God in our mind. What do I mean by that? I, I don't mean that we're, we're picturing him, although that would apply. I, I mean, we're not thinking of him as he's revealed himself. You get this a lot from people. I like to think of God as a loving God, they might say. Now, what's interesting, though, is their definition of what love is isn't God's. Or I like to think of God as, as a God who really cares, and that means he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow this bad thing to happen. You know what you've done? You've torn down the, the true image of God that Scripture presents, the true revelation of God. And you filled in the mouth of God your own voice and said, this is God. And, and is that any different than what Aaron did when he made the golden calf and said, serve the, your Lord who saved you. 
We have that all the time when we have impurities in our idea of God, when we, when we truly don't think he's as comforting as he is or as holy as he is. When we don't respect him as we should, we've, we've created a, an idea of God that is less than, that isn't true. It sends to every area of life. Third, the use of images misunderstands God's fierce covenant loyalty. This one might be harder to grasp the point that's being made here. And the idea is that idolatry exposes a lack of trust in the God who has pledged his word and given his oath in covenant. His covenant word is what matters. That's how he has revealed himself and that's what binds him. Idolatry, though, is often used to try and worship God or provide a link to him. But God has already linked us to him through the covenant. And what it is, then, is this. It's that I want more of God, but you don't seek him through that covenant relationship. You want more of God, and so let me make something, and then I can have a better relationship with him. Now, do you see how that devalues your covenant fellowship that God has given to you, that you already have, that's already established? That you would think, you know, if I could just have God in this way, then I would really, really be able to trust him. Then I would really be able to worship him. God has already established that. When we try to devise other ways in God's covenant way to commune with him, we reject that loyalty that God has made to his covenant. And we show we don't get it, we don't understand it. Fourth, the use of images misunderstands God's self-revelation. Idolatry is not restricted to that external forms or rituals. John Calvin calls our minds a clever engraver. A clever engraver. In other words, we dream up these images of God, which we've touched on already, the I like to think of God as. Because the other thing that does is it depreciates what's before us. It depreciates God's word. It means that we, one, haven't respected him enough to actually look to what he said and revealed about himself. You know, to those who would say, I like to think of the God as loving, and they mean something different. It means they actually haven't taken the time to, to comb through God's word, to properly understand it, to take it and see what God means by love. So I'd, I'd bring back the illustration of gift giving. If you put no thought into the gift, what, is that, what does that mean about what you think of the, the person you're giving it to? You didn't care. A good gift is one that, what, what's the term we use? Well, that was a thoughtful gift. Put a lot of thought into that. That, that really captured who I was. That really, you, you really understood the things that I like to do. Well, false forms of worship show that we have not done that. Nor have we sacrificed the, the time that we would take to, to put aside the things we do like to do and do what God does, and, and hopefully the two won't be contrary, but together and united, that you will like and want to worship God the way he has said. This is how we fall into this. I want to continue on with question and answer 98, as it expounds on the truth of this commandment. It says, But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? So you see the question, the question is, but, but what about those who, who cannot read or who, who don't have understanding, who, who need a visual portrayal, and, and is, that, is that appropriate? Catechism says, no, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. 
I think this, at this point, this question and answer is actually very relevant today. Not because we're in the same position they were when, when the church at the time had veneration of saints and icons and images and stained glass windows and everything that could be there. Not because we're, we're facing that in that way. But the, 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 the impetus, the reason behind the question is that, well, what about those who don't know? What about those who aren't educated? Sadly, we live in an extremely illiterate culture, especially as it deals with understanding God's Word. Uh, in one sense, you could almost say it, it seems to be as bad now as it ever was in, in how people are ignorant to what God's Word says. And so then the reason this question and answer becomes that much more important is because what does the, the, some of the churches want to do in response to that? You know, what we need to do is change the way we worship. We, we have these people who don't know God. Maybe they connect to him better if we worship God in this way. If, we, if instead of, of having so much of a sermon, maybe we make it more, more music-based. Maybe, maybe we'll draw them in that way. And then what ends up happening is we start to try to, to, to bring these unlearned in, we might call them, whether they're, they're Christians who don't know or even unbelievers. And we think, let's gear up our worship towards them. Let's bring them in. But, but what's the answer? The answer God's word provides, as summarized in the catechism, is that's trying to be wiser than God, because what did he say? Preach the word. Where does faith come from the preaching of God's word? What does he center as, as, as his worship? It's the proclamation of the gospel, not only as it's, as it's given from the pulpit itself, but portrayed in the sacraments. It's his word that's front and center and all these other ways of, of seeking to, to package our worship and, and to give it to these people in that way is a denial of the way God would have us worship. You know, that doesn't mean we don't want the unlearned here. That doesn't mean we don't try to be clear enough to have them even understand what God's word is saying. I'm going to explain this statement, but it is true. If an unbeliever, or, or a rather... Uh, unknowledgeable Christian were to come into our church and be right at home, that's probably not good. Here's what I, I don't mean by that, that they're not welcomed, and then, that they're not taken. That's what we should do. They should feel at home in that sense. But what we're, what we're doing here is worshiping a God wholly other than us, wise and, and, and infinite. And we're following a pattern and a principle that he has set forward for worship. And if someone were to just walk in off the street and feel right at home, does that mean that that's what we're doing? You see, there's an appropriateness that they would walk in and be overwhelmed by a sense of reverence and awe that they haven't felt before, that, that they would even question, well, what's going on here? What does that mean? And again, it's not because we're trying to be purposefully vague, but because what's being done here isn't human cultural desires for worship, it's God's. Culture will always impact aspects of worship. Societies will. Day and ages will. But not the elements of worship itself. There's, there's something other than here. And if what we're giving to, to, as the Catechism would say, to these unlearned, if what we're giving to them is what they're finding out there in the world, why would they come back? Because the answers aren't out there. And true worship of the Lord isn't out there. It should be in here. That should be what draws them in, something of the otherness of it. 
and that it's, it's totally and completely geared towards God himself. That's how we are to worship God. That's the way we are to do it, not to be wiser than him, but to center it on the preaching of his word and what he calls us to do in worship. I want to end, though, on one point that is vital to this, which I haven't explained, and that is, how do we worship Christ appropriately? How do we worship God appropriately? The answer is that it can only be through Christ. I put it here not because it's the least important, because it is the most. It is that that hinge linchpin upon which our worship will turn. Because what is acceptable worship to God? It is only worship that can be set and through Christ himself. John 1.1 1, 1 explains this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What's at the center of our worship service? Well, it's the Word. It's Christ, not only in God's Word, because God's Word is the Word, is Jesus Christ. It's in the message itself. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Christ, we have an amazing gift from the Lord. We have a spirit who cannot be portrayed in in image ways, but who came to the the earth in a human form, in his Son. And so to see, then, the Son is to see the Father. One passage really gets at this. It's when Jesus talks to Philip in John 14. Philip asks a question that we're dealing with. He He asks Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father. You know what he's asking is is a worship question. Lord, how do we worship? Because that's what you're doing. In worship, you are coming to bring your thanksgiving and praise, but it's in the the desire and, and for the goal to see the Lord that you might give him more praise. So you're desiring to see God, and that's what Philip is saying. Show us the Father. And, and what's Jesus' answer? He says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We used those bigger terms earlier in the service, a normative principle, a regulative principle. Well, the regulative principle of worship is the reformed way of worship, but I'll add another term to it. It can only be properly done if it's Christological, if it's centered on Christ. Any other way of trying to worship God fails. Any any other way to the Father is a false way. Any other way of depicting who God is will lead you to error. There is only one true way to worship God, and that is worship God, and that is through Christ. And worship is governed according to these principles. I've heard this many times. You know, we we can sometimes be a bit. I guess embarrassed about our way of worship sometimes. And thinking, ah, no one's going to want this. It's, it's boring. They're going to think it's boring. How can we invite someone here? They're not going to like it. All that. You can be embarrassed about it. But what I have seen is, is when this is faithfully done and centered on Christ, often there are those who, who come and, and will say, you know what impressed me about that worship was how God was at the center of all of it. That everything done was to the glory of God. That, that the whole service had meaning and purpose. And, and it, was all, it was all meaty and weighty. It fed and it, it put God at the center. That's 
what our goal is in worship. To worship God through his son and to do it in an acceptable way, to do it properly. And, and we don't need to, nor should we be embarrassed about that. When we believe we are worshiping God as he has commanded, and I do believe that is what we do here, there is no embarrassment to, to, to even tell someone, would you come here and experience something you've never seen before? You've never witnessed worship of God as, as he has commanded, what's holy and reverential. That's why we don't want to miss a minute of it. That's why we want to be in worship. It's not always easy, Right? Right? The pastor can drone on. Pastors know that. Some of you are probably thinking that's what's happening right now, you know? We, we, we know that. We know it can be hard work, but would we have it any other way? We're offering to God that sacrifice, a living sacrifice to him because we love him. And so let's put the work in. And let's center every aspect on him. Let us, let us do it for his glory. And when we're evaluating what is proper worship, well, the first place we go to is not that question everyone else does. I don't like that style. It's the question, is it biblical? Is it the way God has commanded? Because it's the second commandment. We worship God in no other way than he has commanded in his word. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are thankful to be instructed about how to worship you and that you are gracious enough to, to put in your word a, a way in which to know how to properly and appropriately worship you. Lord, we would ask that our worship here at our church and as well as the churches around the world would be these that are centered to worship you as you've commanded. That would be one regulated then by your word and would also and especially be the, what is done through Christ and is Christ-centered. So we know the way to see the Father is, is through the Son. And we know the way to be united to the Son is through the Spirit. And that even in to, to, to properly worship you, it is that Trinitarian way as it, it centers on the gospel and the Son and word the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's offered to you, our Father in heaven. What a glorious truth. Lord, foster within us a greater desire to worship you. Foster within us a desire to want to want to worship. And may it be acceptable in your sight with reverence and awe for your glory and for our good. We ask this in your name.